Welcome to Scam This. We're starting off this week with a situation at the U.S.-Mexico border, where thousands of Haitian migrants are hoping to reach the U.S. Scenes of how border officers responded to them is now causing an uproar in D.C. Then we'll hit some other headlines, from Pfizer's big week to Canada's prime minister keeping his seat, and the first legal challenges to that Texas abortion law. We've also got the latest from the UN General Assembly, where things aren't all handshakes and smiles. Later, we'll take a deep dive into two industries that are in desperate need of workers, childcare and nursing. And we'll round things out by talking all things TV, slash the future of award shows. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. One story you've definitely heard about or seen photos of this week involves thousands of Haitian migrants gathering on the Texas border in the hope of crossing into the U.S. And on Monday... Joe Biden's government has now started to send back Haitian migrants who have gathered in a Texas border back to their homeland. This sudden move can be viewed as one of America's swiftest large-scale expulsions of migrants in decades. Here's what's happening. Last week, about 400 migrants, mostly Haitian, were waiting just south of the U.S.-Mexico border. But by the start of the week, crowds had grown to around 14,000 people as word spread that some people were making it into the U.S. Cue images you've probably seen by now as U.S. border agents were photographed chasing migrants on horseback and using reins to push them back from the border. U.S. Customs and Border Protection is promising an investigation into that incident, and the White House called the pictures horrific. Though, back in D.C., the response coordinated by other parts of the federal government are being met with criticism, too. The Biden administration is flying hundreds of Haitians back to their home country, including many who haven't lived in Haiti for years after long migration journeys through Central and South America. Mexico reportedly plans to do the same. After considerable public pressure, the U.S. government is releasing some detained Haitians into the U.S. as they go through the process of applying for asylum. But that opportunity also comes with a warning. Anyone who doesn't qualify for asylum will be deported. It's not hard to see why thousands of Haitians are asking for help from the U.S., In many ways, Haiti is still struggling to rebuild itself a decade after a 2010 earthquake killed over 100,000 people. Then there was 2016's Hurricane Matthew, which killed hundreds and caused widespread damage. And just weeks after the country's president was assassinated this July, the island was hit by a 7.2 magnitude earthquake, which was swiftly followed by a tropical storm. Plus, according to human rights groups, there are more than 90 gangs in Haiti, complicating everyday Haitians' access to basic food and physical safety. All of that is on top of persistent economic instability that makes it hard to earn a living. As for what's next, Haitians who've been in the U.S. since July 29th can claim temporary protected status, giving them the ability to live and work in the U.S. for a limited period of time. Anyone arriving since then might have a better chance at claiming asylum than they would have a few weeks ago. Recently, President Biden nearly doubled the total number of refugees eligible to resettle in the U.S. to 125,000, although that yearly cap doesn't kick in until October 1st. But none of that is a guarantee for Haitians seeking a better life. 
leading a number of lawmakers, including allies of the president, to criticize the government's response. The U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti even resigned this week, calling the deportations inhumane and the U.S.'s policy towards Haiti deeply flawed. But beyond calls to suspend deportation flights, no one can agree on exactly what to do next, especially since addressing the situation at the border will likely require large-scale immigration reform, a topic Congress keeps kicking down the road. All right, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, elementary schools could soon be better protected from COVID. Here's the context. This week, the drug companies Pfizer and BioNTech released results of a clinical trial of their COVID vaccine involving more than 2,000 children between the ages of 5 and 11. According to those trials, the vaccine produced a strong immune response in kids. That's good news because kids were given just one-third of the vaccine doses that adults received. In addition to being effective, the vaccine also appeared safe in kids, with symptoms that were, quote, generally comparable to those observed in participants 16 to 25 years of age. If you're wondering, what does this mean for when my kid can get vaccinated? We don't have a clear answer yet. Pfizer still needs to submit this data to the FDA, and then the FDA still needs time to review once that happens. As for when all of that could get wrapped up, Dr. Fauci told MSNBC this week that we could be talking before Halloween, so hopefully not too long. Meanwhile, just because we're talking about kids ages 5 to 11 here, Pfizer says it's already testing its vaccine on kids as young as six months. The company says to expect results from those trials by the end of the year. Oh, and one other quick piece of vaccine news. As of Wednesday, the FDA has officially authorized the Pfizer booster shot for people 65 and up, and for people who are at high risk. But whether boosters will be given the okay for people younger than 65, or for people who got Moderna or J&J, remains to be seen. So stay tuned. Okay, next headline. The U.S. says it will grant entry to all air passengers from early November as long as they have been vaccinated and tested for COVID-19. Calling our European listeners, who's down for a skim this New Year's in Times Square? While the details of these new travel rules are still being worked out, here's what we know. Starting in early November, travelers from 33 countries, including China, India, and most of Europe, will get their first chance to visit the U.S. in 18 months. Foreign travelers may be eager to visit the U.S. The American tourism industry just may not be ready for them. Immigration restrictions have prevented many foreign students from getting visas to work in the U.S. And that's on top of staffing shortages faced by hotels and restaurants as Americans pursue other work. All right, let's head north. What we've seen tonight is that millions of Canadians have chosen a progressive plan. That's Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who has a new lease on political life. On Monday, Canadians voted in national elections, and Trudeau won a third term in office. He claimed voters handed his Liberal Party a clear mandate to govern, though we're going to blow the whistle on that claim. The whole reason Trudeau called for early elections just halfway through his term in office was to help Liberals win a majority in the Canadian Parliament. But they failed to do that. Kind of proving a point made by Trudeau's main opponent that the whole election was a waste of money and energy. So be careful what you wish for. 
And finally, we've got some news from the Lone Star State. The first known legal challenge, and it could be a test to the most restrictive abortion law in the nation. Here's the context. Over the weekend, a doctor in Texas wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying he performed an abortion that violated the new Texas law, SB8. Reminder, SB8 is a near total ban on abortion, where it's illegal to have one or to provide one after a fetal heartbeat is detected, usually around six weeks. This law gives everyday people and not law enforcement the power to actually enforce it. And this week, two people did just that and sued the doctor in the first known challenges to the law. But those challenges aren't coming from anti-abortion groups. They're reportedly laying low, happy that the law is in effect and concerned that lawsuits could open it up to being overturned. Instead, these two plaintiffs aren't even from Texas. One of them says he's actually suing because he opposes the law. Regardless, these civil suits allow the substance of the Texas law, like whether or not it's even constitutional, to be challenged in court. We've been to a lot of weddings lately and heard a lot of toasts. Some were good, but many went way too off the rails. One big diplomatic wedding of sorts kicked off in New York this week, the UN General Assembly. And the big wedding toast was given by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, the father of the bride, if you will. On Tuesday, he grabbed the mic. Mr. President of the General Assembly, Excellencies. Oh, that's so cute. I'm here to sound the alarm. Oh no, we might need to get a refill for this. The world must wake up. We are on the edge of an abyss and moving in the wrong direction. Forget sharing memories about the groom meeting mom and dad for the first time. Guterres went full ex-boyfriend horror stories. No, really. He literally mentioned hellscapes, ancient grievances, and gave the audience an F grade for ethics and went on for about 20 more minutes. (laughs) Okay, that was fun. But seriously, just like watching the uncomfortable family dynamics at a wedding, we can learn a lot by watching the UN General Assembly. After listening to the speeches this week, we picked up on three things that the Secretary General slash Father of the Bride said we should start paying attention to. One is sharing vaccine doses. Two, battling climate change, and three, avoiding cold wars. Grab some free Prosecco, because we're skimming each of these, starting with sharing vaccine doses. Guterres praised the quick development of COVID vaccines, but observed that while a lot of the wealthy world is vaxxed, over 90% of Africans, for instance, are still waiting for a first dose. This is a moral indictment of the state of our world. It is an obscenity. We passed the science test, but we are getting an F in ethics. So how'd that go over? President Biden basically butted into the toast. Planes carrying vaccines from the United States have already landed in 100 countries, bringing people all over the world a little dose of hope. On Wednesday, Biden announced that the U.S. would buy and give away an extra 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. 
He said he hopes 70% of the world can be vaxxed by this time next year, if other countries also pitch in and donate. Guterres hasn't responded to that announcement yet, but maybe Biden's generosity got the U.S. out of the doghouse, at least for now. Okay, time for agenda item two, fighting climate change. This is a planetary emergency. My message to every member state is this. Don't wait for others to make the first move. This one's bleak. Guterres and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson hosted a climate meeting on Monday, but it ended with little action to show for it. Basically, another meeting that could have been an email. But China did make some news on energy, though. In his UN speech, Chinese President Xi Jinping announced that China would stop building coal power plants overseas. That's a big deal, since according to one tracker, China has spent billions doing exactly that in recent years. If China sticks to its word, it would mean countries hoping to build new coal power plants will have to finance those projects themselves, or hopefully take international help to go green. Which brings us to agenda item three, avoiding cold wars. The world's two largest economies are at odds with each other, and this is a recipe for trouble. That one might have caused the U.S. and China to sober up quickly. The U.S.-China beef got a lot of attention this week. Guterres was frustrated that China and the U.S. haven't resolved their trade tensions and were instead developing separate rules for everything from trade to technology and even human rights, making the idea of solving problems together seem far-fetched. So what did the U.S. and China have to say for themselves? China's president was like, nothing to see here, and said China hates when countries form small circles or play zero-sum games. Biden also denied the bad blood. We're not seeking, say it again, we are not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid blocks. Good to know, except he also said the U.S. wanted to strengthen several alliances, including one in the Pacific that's pretty focused on pushing back on China. So while neither President Biden or President Xi was willing to admit it, the whole U.S.-China rivalry is definitely still on. So all in all, this year's U.N. toast was kind of a downer, pretty cringy, and roasted the audience. But come to think of it, there was a moment when the Secretary General did try to bring people together by throwing some shade at guys who weren't on the guest list. Billionaires joyriding to space while millions go hungry on Earth. All right, when the rest of the toast is such a bummer, we'll take all the zingers we can get. Lately, you might have heard a lot about this. There's the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling. Debt ceiling concern. The U.S. is about to get cut off by itself. It's hard to know whether to be scared by this headline or just baffled. Are we about to run out of money as a country? But also, why would we put ourselves here in the first place? Here's what you need to know in 60 seconds. The debt ceiling is the maximum amount the U.S. can borrow to pay off its debts. The debt ceiling is set by Congress, and you can think of it like the credit limit Congress puts on the government's credit card. Maybe that's intuitive enough in theory, but good luck understanding how the debt ceiling is used by politicians. Congress now regularly approves all sorts of government spending, only to tell the government, oh, sorry, you've hit your spending limit. 
The U.S. hit its debt ceiling this summer and has been penny-pinching since then as Congress scrambles to act. If it doesn't, the U.S. could default on its loans as soon as October, causing a drop in the U.S. government credit score that could make borrowing money more expensive. It could also make it impossible for the government to make crucial payments, like military salaries or social security checks for seniors. This week, House Democrats voted to suspend the debt ceiling until the end of 2022, but it passed with zero Republican votes. Bad news, since the bill needs 10 Senate Republicans to back it, meaning we're in a game of chicken. Democrats hope the risk of unpaid Social Security checks or unpaid soldiers causes Republicans to blink first and vote to suspend the debt ceiling. And Republicans want Democrats to squirm and have to be the ones left explaining why the government needs to spend so much money in the first place. Meanwhile, all of us, and not to mention most other wealthy countries that don't impose debt ceilings on themselves, are left wondering, is this really the best way to run a country? How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. A few months ago, we did a story about all the help-wanted signs we were seeing around the country. There are still approximately 10 million job openings in the U.S., and resignations have hit all-time highs as Americans rethink what they want to do. Those 10 million job openings also aren't spread evenly throughout different industries, and today we're going to tell you about two sectors where the need for workers is dire, and could even be life or death. We're talking about shortages in nursing and childcare, industries that employ mostly women and which have outsized impacts on the economy. First, let's talk about childcare. It's always been hard to find childcare. Heather Long is the economics correspondent for The Washington Post. Parents, and not just pandemic parents, you'll know what she's talking about. The crunch to find daycare isn't new. One reason the childcare industry has historically struggled to keep up with demand is that it's been hard to hire and retain employees. These are really hard jobs and they're generally low paying. The typical pay is $12.24 an hour in the industry. So puts it in kind of the bottom 2% of all jobs across the whole nation. Low pay and no benefits aren't exactly enticing offers, especially when other employers are offering more lucrative salaries and benefits. Long told us, as a result, a lot of daycare workers have left the industry. A lot of workers just never came back, and particularly women, women of color who are in their early 20s, who used to be the main recruiting for this industry, they just looked at this and said, this is too low pay. Often it doesn't come with benefits. Now have Walmarts and McDonald's and certainly warehouses that are paying $15 to $20 an hour. In some cases are offering hiring bonuses. People saw other opportunities and they went for them. It's kind of economics 101. In fact, some of the places poaching childcare workers are actually K through 12 schools who can pay better. And teachers also get summer vacation. And if you're thinking, can't childcare centers just pay their employees more? Long told us it's not that simple. A stat that really stood out to me, for a typical restaurant, staffing costs are about 30% of the cost. If you want to raise the pay for the kitchen staff or whatnot, you could maybe try to cut costs elsewhere or manage your costs elsewhere. 
And a typical daycare staffing costs are 60% or more. In some places, they're 80%. So it is basically the bulk of your budget. You can't fiddle around with other parts of the budget to try to keep those costs manageable for parents and raise pay for the workers at the same time. It's, it's just mathematically not possible. As for the workers who are still in the childcare industry... So many people across the country feel this burnout, but daycares in many cases are on the front lines and they were open for quite a bit, if not all of the pandemic. I was talking to a worker who was like, I love kids. I always thought this would be my life, but I was there every day and through really tough circumstances and I got a 15 cent pay raise. We were all thanking the heroes of the pandemic and then it sort of seems like that's been forgotten now for a lot of people. Between low pay, no benefits, workers being poached by schools or other industries, and burnout, the childcare industry is in crisis. And Long told us the ripple effect of that is pretty huge. It's really simple. You can't get people back to work, particularly women, without childcare and daycare functioning at full capacity or darn near close to full capacity. So when we talk about nearly 2 million women, moms still missing from the labor force, that has a huge drag on our economy's growth, on earning potential, and on spending potential in communities across the country. Somebody made a great point to me. They're like, you know, it's really sad when a restaurant closes in your block or in your town, but usually another restaurant does pop up. And that is not the case with daycares. When daycares shut, You usually don't see another one that just pops right back. Which means Long believes it's time for the U.S. to finally put some serious investment into childcare. When you look at this, the U.S. versus other parts of the world, what's interesting is the U.S. is pretty much a leader in spending on kids in the K through 12. So once they get to elementary school, you know, we're spending close to $13,000 a year per kid on average. For children, though, under six, we spend only 3000 a year. And for the sort of infant to two, we're spending 500 or less a year. The United States for early childhood education is actually ranked 35th out of 37 countries of the most developed economies in the world. So we're really lagging behind. (laughs) And I I think all of this tells me, you know, you can debate, does it need to be a federal investment or should it it be a state program? West Virginia, for instance, does free preschool for all of its youngsters. So, you know, there's different models you could do, but I think at the end of the day, it's hard to conceive of a system that's going to work and be a lot different than what we're in now without a significant investment. The White House is trying to do just that. President Biden has proposed a $450 billion federal investment in childcare, but that funding is tied up in that pesky $3.5 trillion spending plan that's still kicking around the Senate. So whether that investment is enough or even makes it through Congress is still TBD. That brings us to the other worker shortage we wanted to talk about nursing. I say quite often now that we are currently in a healthcare crisis. That's Lindsay Harris, the president of the Alabama State Nurses Association. She told us the nursing shortage we've been hearing about recently has also been going on for a long time. Our population is getting older. Our healthcare is becoming more sophisticated. And so with that, we need more nurses. Over the past few years, she says the supply of nurses really hasn't kept up with demand. 
One reason is that a lot of schools with nursing programs can't accept more students, in part because nursing teachers are quitting or retiring. Hospitals are also too stretched to provide on-the-job training. And COVID-19 made things even worse. Our nurses have been cleaning rooms. Our nurses have been, you know, pulling trash and delivering trays. So that has really added an additional task for our nurses to do, as well as taking care of patients and taking care of patients at higher acuity. But we also know that nurses are the backbone of healthcare. And so when there are not enough nurses, then our quality of care for our patient, that decreases. Our staff satisfaction, that will decrease. Between nurses doing double or even triple duty, rising COVID numbers in Harris's state of Alabama, and low pay for nurses there, many are going elsewhere for work, including across state lines. That could help some nurses find better roles within the healthcare field. But Harris said it doesn't address the other major crisis in nursing. Nurses are mentally drained. I say this a lot. There's a couple of types of tired, right? So there's mentally tired and then there's a physical tired. So you come home being physically tired, you eat dinner, you take shower, and then you get rest. And a lot of times you're refreshed. But when you have a sense of mental tiredness, you leave work, you have a patient that's on a ventilator that you don't know if they're gonna be there or be alive the next day. You are short staffed, and then you go home, and when you wake up and come back, you have that same issue. And especially those that are working in some of the intensive care units, the ICUs, or you have those on the front line in the emergency departments who are coming in contact with all type of patients. Some they know are COVID positive, some they don't. And then they have to think about, was I exposed? Is this going to affect my family? So this is not just the nursing shortage. This is not just the lack of pay here in the state. This is deeper than anything that we've ever dealt with in healthcare. This nursing crisis, especially in the middle of the pandemic, is causing all kinds of harm to the healthcare system. Some hospitals are choosing not to perform certain procedures altogether. Others are trying to do it all, but nursing shortages mean they're struggling to schedule procedures or get non-COVID patients to specialists. That's led to some patients in ERs or intensive care units not getting the care they need to be released. And as a result, their hospital beds aren't freeing up for new patients who need admission. Before long, you can see why the whole system starts to break down. So just like the major obstacles that stand in the way of fixing the childcare shortage, what are some potential fixes here? In the short term, state governors and hospitals are desperately trying to fill their staffing holes. Some have shifted hospital administrators into patient services. Another asked nursing teachers to leave the classroom and care for patients, sometimes for the first time in years. And many are finding staff from other states, using what are known as traveling nurse programs, which fill some holes but create others. But those are band-aids, not sustainable fixes, especially as a generation of older nurses continues to retire. According to one study, by 2030, the U.S. could face a shortage of more than half a million nurses, meaning a lot more needs to be done to attract new nurses to the profession, 
and to retain them. That could involve improving pay, including for nursing educators, and increasing benefits like retention bonuses. It could also mean making nursing education more accessible and less burdensome for students. But to do any of that, hospitals need to get past being on 24-7 red alert because of COVID-19, which we know is easier said than done. But Harris said there's one thing we can all do to ease the immediate burden on nurses and on the healthcare system. Getting vaccinated, creating that herd immunity will definitely help to decrease and minimize that strain that we have on healthcare currently. Chances are, whether you're a childcare worker, a nurse, a parent, or a patient who's needed care lately, or just know someone who is, this story feels very personal. And instead of continuing to tell this story to you, we'd love to hear from you. How are you seeing this story play out? How should your industry try to solve this staffing crisis? And what other angles to the story are we missing? Leave us a voicemail at 646-461-6370, and we might give you a call back to learn more. We've also left that number in our show notes. We can't wait to hear from you. Before we go today, we wanted to shift gears and wind things down a little. So we're talking about the one thing we all love to do watching TV. The Emmys were on Sunday, and they weren't without controversy. To debrief on the awards and get a preview of what to expect for the rest of award season, we called up someone on our team who's the best at this, Bridget Armstrong. She's the host of our upcoming pop culture podcast, Pop Cultured with the Skim. Bridget, welcome to Skim This. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. So we're recording this a few days after the Emmys. What were your lasting impressions from Sunday? Like the good, the bad, the ugly. All right. I'll start with the good. Ted Lasso, a show that is very popular, a show I love, a show that I think got a lot of people through 2020, won big that night. And it's always great to see shows that really resonate and capture the hearts of audiences actually get that critical acclaim and see that translate over to the Emmys and award shows. Another big standout for me was seeing Debbie Allen win the Governor's Award. Debbie Allen is a longtime actress, producer, choreographer. A lot of people know her from the iconic movie Fame. You may know her more recently from Grey's Anatomy. She's the first Black woman to win this award, and it is something like a Lifetime Achievement Award. So it's great to see her recognized for all of her contributions to the industry. Those are the high notes. What are the lows? Fortunately, I think the thing that overshadowed a lot of the awards this year was Emmy So White. We have a record number of shows that feature actors of color in starring roles, right? And we even have a record number of actors who are being recognized for those roles. But it's not translating to actual wins. There were no actors of color that actually won any awards. And I can't say what's happening in the minds of Emmy voters, but what it seems like is that when it comes to actually giving recognition, Hollywood is very much stuck on what it's liked before. It's very much stuck on its bread and butter, feel-good shows that center white men, and expansive period pieces that 
because of like the time that they're in, like give the excuse of having a mostly white cast, right? And so like that we see winning and grabbing the attention of Hollywood over and over and over and over again. And I think as much as actors of color are being recognized through nominations, I think it's going to take a lot more for actors of color to sort of push through that instinct to just go back to what Hollywood is used to celebrating. So the Emmys are typically seen as like award season kickoff. And based on what we saw on Sunday, what are you going to be looking out for for the rest of award season as we go to kind of higher stakes, Golden Globes, Oscars, et cetera? Well, certainly I'm hoping to see some of the other awards shows recognize some of the actors that were snubbed by the Emmys. I hope particularly a lot of people felt like I May Destroy You was snubbed in a lot of ways. Michaela Cole did win Best Writing on a Limited Series, but actors on the show, including her, were nominated and they didn't win any. So I'm looking out for I May Destroy You. Another snub I would hope would be recognized at another award show, Michael K. Williams, who recently died, but he was nominated this year for an outstanding supporting actor role for his role in Lovecraft Country, a show that also was extremely popular, critically acclaimed. So I'd love to see him recognized other places. So I think we're also going to see the domination of streaming continue, right? Every year, there's a lot of speculation about, you know, when streaming will take over. And I think what we learned this year is that the takeover is complete. The thing we have to think about with Netflix and some of these other streaming services is that they produce so much content content that like some of it has to be good, right? And I think that what we're seeing with Netflix is just solidifying the fact that streaming is sort of the big dog in this game. And it's so funny to think about a few years ago, they were considered the underdogs. But now many of the cable companies and many of the traditional networks, which have also launched their own streaming services, they're sort of like playing catch up to the bigger streaming services like Netflix and Apple TV, which is certainly something we wouldn't have thought would happen 10 years ago. And Bridget, you're also going to be hosting our new pop culture podcast here at The Skim. What are you most excited to cover on the new show? Well, I love talking about TV. So this is perfect. I'm super excited to talk to people every week about the big pop culture news that's happening. I also like talking to really smart people about stuff I have no clue about. We're working on an upcoming episode that's going to be all about outer space. I know nothing about outer space. So it was like a great conversation to talk to like all these scientists about things that they study and things that they're passionate about that could help us understand what's going on around it. That's awesome. Well, we're really looking forward to it. Bridget, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Last week, we asked you guys to leave us a review on iTunes, and you stepped up. We're pretty sure these aren't your real names, but shout out to Baby Evie, TCF Nova, Kyla SDB, Kathy G50, oh, and this is probably a real name, Allison Levitt. Your reviews help people sort through more than 2 million other podcasts out there and find us. So, thanks. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had help this week from Sajeen Coriellis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with The Skim, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts.